today, folks. Make your lives extraordinary. Listen to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, home to the people of Treaty 7 and the Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. dismantle a system that is white supremacist, if we're going to dismantle an imperialist system, and if we're going to dismantle a system where the police are largely there to protect property of the wealthy, then we have to, at at the core, understand that white supremacy and racism, while they are significant things that we have to deal with and they're very real, they can only exist within the context of a state that defends class at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so... We can't, we can't disentangle those things. And the white working class also has to understand that their own liberation and economic freedom is tied directly to dismantling these systems. That's Mark Lamont Hill. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Mark Lamont Hill and Kianga Yamata-Taylor on dismantling the system. Is it starry-eyed to think about not just regime change, but something much larger, system change? The systemic failures of the current crisis and the calamitous fissures it has exposed has raised the question of the efficacy of reform, half-measures, and tinkering around the edges. When under duress, the system is agile enough to make some concessions, while crucially leaving the fundamental structures of power intact. From the outside, systems can look invincible and impregnable. Just tell that to Louis XVI in 1789, or the Tsar in 1917, or the Shah of Iran in 1979, or Hosni Mubarak in 2011. The noted writer Ursula Le Guin reminds us, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Our guests today are Mark Lamont Hill and Kianga Yamata-Taylor. Mark Lamont Hill is professor of media studies and urban education at Temple University. He's the author of Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, 
from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. Kianga Yamata-Taylor is assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. Her articles appear in the New York Times, Counterpunch, Jacobin, and The Guardian. She's the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. They spoke in Philadelphia at an online event hosted by Haymarket Books in early June 2020. The moderator, E. Tammy Kim, poses the first question. Many commentators continue to analogize what we're seeing right now to what happened in the 60s. Um, and Kianga, I wanted to start by asking you, you wrote a piece in The New Yorker about this kind of feeling maybe more like the rebellion in L.A. in April of 92. I think part of what I was trying to do was say that, of course, there are similarities with the uprisings of the, the 1960s, the kind of continuous thread through all of this is police racism, police violence, but we always know that most of the urban uprisings of the the 20th century, whether it's Harlem 1935, Detroit 1943, rebellions from uh, 1963 really through 1969, police brutality is the spark that lights a much larger fire beneath of Unemployment, underemployment, substandard housing, poverty, all of those sorts of things. And so all of those features are certainly prevalent now. And the COVID crisis has exposed to everyone the extent to which um, African-Americans remain marginalized, oppressed, and exploited in this country. And I wanted to talk about the L.A. rebellion, though, as the context within which we can understand why these uh, riots have erupted, which is to say that in the aftermath of L.A. in 1992, that wasn't a moment of recognition of the oppression um, and racism experienced in Black communities. Thus, shouldn't we use society's resources to do something about it? Um, Instead, it became a moment for recrimination led Mm. by figures such as Bill Clinton um, and Joe Biden, who helped to usher in uh, a crime bill, which is understood to be one of the pillars of mass incarceration uh, and the hyper-policing of Black communities, but also which helped to demonize welfare recipients and ultimately to get rid of welfare as an entitlement. Bill Clinton promised in 1992 to end welfare as we know it. He was supported by Biden. And then in 1996, signs legislation to do so. And so I wanted to connect both of those to today, because one of the reasons why there is such hardship around COVID is because we have no social welfare state in Mm -hmm. this country. And one of the reasons we don't have a social welfare state um, in this country is because of the actions led by Republicans, um, accommodated and enhanced by the Democratic Party in the 1990s, who used racism Um, And this perception of black women on welfare, of black people as lazy and wanting something for nothing uh, as the tool to essentially get rid of welfare, even though everyone knew then who were making these decisions that the majority of people who were welfare recipients in the 1990s uh, were white women, Um, but they still use racial caricatures 
uh, as a way to undermine the system as a whole. And that is the reason why, you know, there's such a dearth of food stamps, that there is no cash uh, mm-hmm. payments available for people, and that there's really just no system of social welfare. And so there's a, a way that we can sometimes think of these things as either the products of ancient history, decisions that were made a long time ago. Um, And I wanted to underline that, no, this is a product of more recent history. You know, there's a lot of talk about racism as a disease, as a a pandemic, as a cancer. And Mm -hmm. I understand the illusions. But no, racism is a product of public policy decisions that are made on a daily basis. It is the product of actions taken in the private sector on a daily basis. It is not ancient history. It is decisions that are made in the here and now as part of our contemporary lives that African-Americans have to contend with in this country. And so I wanted to kind of make sense of that evolution of the Democratic Party, its impact on policy today to raise the bigger question about, can we rely on the same figures whose politics and actions created this problem, can we rely on them to be the way out of it? And Joe Biden is a particular figure who comes into office in 1973 in the aftermath of the black insurgency of the 1960s, is a pivotal figure in the conservative turn in Democratic Party politics, is, is part of the raised expectations that come crashing down in the Obama administration and now has the gall and the audacity to present himself as the harbinger of change. So I wanted to talk about those issues. And Mark, last night you held a really wonderful town hall on BET, which featured a wide range of speakers from politicians like Stacey Abrams to kind of more like radical imaginative thinkers like Brittany Packnett and Imani Perry. Could you say a little bit about sort of what you heard from them and what you've been thinking in terms of how we keep a radical imaginary as we go forward in this movement? I think that Stacey Abrams has consistently sort of argued for a a more expansive political imagination, consistently argued that we need to imagine the world differently, that there are new possibilities. But then there are these moments where she stops short. And those moments where she stops short are precisely the places where we need her at this juncture in history. And that's not a specific critique to Stacey Abrams as much as it is to say, we're, we're always constrained by the pragmatic. We're always confined by this idea that the world is on fire And if we don't intervene at this moment with this pragmatic solution, then there will be no recovering. And Mm -hmm. so we, to Kianga's point, we don't just end up with the same types of people. We literally end up with the same people. (laughs) We literally end up with the author of the crime. (laughs) And and so under under that kind of of condition, the conversation moves and then 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 it steps back. And those types of fits and starts are normal in history with any kind of any kind of political project. It's never a clean, you know, journey from from zero to 100. I'm fine with that. But I need to make sure that we're talking in a way that gets us somewhere else. I understand that we need to allow for the urgency of Trump. And Trump is not simply a an extreme iteration of what we've already seen, but he is the culmination of it. And so we can't pretend that somehow eliminating Trump gets us back to a healthy or progressive state. It gets us back to where we were three years ago, which was mm-hmm. untenable for the most vulnerable people in this in this in this world, but specifically in the United States, and more specifically black, brown, and working class people. So yeah. for me, the conversation has to be both and we have to be able to have folk who can who can call 
who can call out Trump and say, hey, this is this is a whole different sort. This is a whole different thing that's happening. But at the very same time, not pretend that he's some political alien that isn't constituted by all these other historical and, and economic forces and all these institutional mm. arrangements and, 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 and policy decisions that have been made, to Kianga's point. So for me, that kind of that kind of threading of a needle uh, at the analytic level is key. And I'm not sure I'm seeing that in our political discourse. Um, because it's it's so easy at this junction to just appeal to the practical. Like, look, we got to get rid of Trump. We don't have time to think about. We can't talk abolition. So so we we ease the language back to defunding, and before you know it, we're back to reform, right? Mm. And and so I I loved having Brittany on. I, I enjoy um, the conversation. Uh, Brittany uh, Pack Packnet that is um, specifically with regard to this issue of policing. It, it was a great. It's a great conversation to have. The work that she's doing, the work that Dorey McKesson are doing, is in some ways gesturing toward what we need to be doing but in practice the the, the devil is in the details and, and the right. details as they're laid out right now get us back in many ways through other means but certainly get us back to this place of needing the police and centering the police joe biden has a more progressive agenda potentially than say donald trump but there's no fundamental shift in how we think about the economy. There's no fundamental shift in what we think workers' rights are. There's no fundamental shift in how we think about protections. And so at the end of the day, we end up back with an exploited class of people. And the fact that Joe Biden will open the doors to the White House once again for the black managerial class and for the black leadership class mm -hmm. um, well, is appealing to some, but it also is an invite to sort of, again, smuggle in neoliberal politics through other, through other language, but the very same practices. And, and so... It, there, there are moments of, of, of possibility. I mean, Brittany Cooper offers a wonderful critique of, of white supremacy. Amani Perry you know, dares us, as she always does in her work, to imagine new political futures and new political possibilities. And there's that, but, it, but then there's also this other conversation that is, that is shrouded in, in, in the language of the practical, but really becomes another excuse to, to be afraid to dream and, and to have a, a real audacious freedom dream here. And, mm -hmm. and again, I, I don't want to squander this moment. And, and, I, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I am terrified that this moment, which is rich with opportunity, is going to be squandered if we if if we are too afraid of Trump. Again, be very clear. I'm not saying we don't need to get rid of Trump as a priority, but if we're so afraid that we don't demand anything better of ourselves and the pol and our politicians and our activists, for that matter. I, I think that what usually happens in any movement, and I think that this actually began to happen in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter in 2014, 2015, is that people sort themselves out. And there will be people for whom defunding is enough. I think defunding is good. I don't think it is abolition. Mm -hmm. I think it's a different thing. But um, I think it is on the pathway to seeing the police as a problem that we need to deal with instead of just passively accepting their presence. But there are other people who, one, think even that is too extreme. The Democratic Party just introduced legislation called just policing, whatever the hell that is supposed <laughs> to mean, of which the question about funding and, and all that is not apparent at all. And so you will have liberals who coalesce around uh, one set of ideas, people who are either on the left but have a different conception of uh, how you deal with certain reforms, You'll have people who are like, none of this, we need to abolish the police. And then the vast majority of people vacillating or drifting between all of those. And so to me, what is important in the moment then is do we create the political space 
for these debates to actually be had out so that they're not just Twitter beefs. They're, they don't turn into acrimony. They don't turn into weird things. But the, these are political ideas and political positions that people have and that we should debate. We should argue about them. We should do all those sorts of things. And where we can agree, we come together and fight around a specific issue. Where we don't, you know, we might part company momentarily. To me, that's a natural thing that happens in political movements. Everyone does not think the same thing. People have uh, consciousness, ideas are very fluid. They're moving around. They're influenced by what is happening on the ground. And we have to allow room and space for that to be able to influence each other, think about what other people are bringing into the debate so that we can figure out more strategically what are the most effective tactics to move us from where we currently are to where it is that we want to be. I think one of the challenges is in this moment, and part of it is this normal sort of mainstream liberal politics, and part of it is, again, the urgency and fear of Trump, mm -hmm. that there's no space to have that conversation. Right. Right. Even in the primaries, I mean, even yes, I mean, there was a moment where there were 74 candidates, and we still weren't allowed to talk about having these conversations, right? <laughs> it was like if we're just give, we're just helping Trump win, right? I mean, right. It's like it's, right, right. when is the moment where we can have a robust conversation instead of debates about domestic and foreign policy, about the economy? About, it's like there's no moment to have it now. If we even hold, if we even challenge Joe Biden on the most fundamental thing, it's you're now aiding and abetting a second term of Trump. And, right. and, and so for me, that kind of mm -hmm. fear and narrow politics doesn't doesn't allow us to have the kind of robust conversation you're talking about, which again is, is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. The Democratic Party is not opening this space for us to, to have mm -hmm. this conversation. I mean, they won't even have it in their own party amongst them <laughs> themselves, you know, where Bernie Sanders is treated, you know, like a pariah who should be kept locked in the closet. But I think that as a left, as people who want to develop politics independent of whatever the Democratic Party does, um, that we have to fight for those spaces. We have to insist on them because that's mm. the only way our side will ever be able to come up with a, a coherent plan, strategy for what it is that we need to do to advance our own agenda, irrespective of what the two main political parties um, decide amongst themselves. We have our own ideas about what needs to happen to get the the, the better world that we all uh, that we all want. But we have to um, ensure that the uh, opportunities and and space for having those discussions together, but also in writing and developing a writing culture where we also think about these ideas. That all of that is, is a part of the process of rebuilding a political left uh, in the United States. I mean, Kanga actually made a really important point. It's one that Ruth Gilmore has made around reform. I mean, the, the sort of simple answer is to say we can have this radical, revolutionary, transformative process or we can just deal with reform. And sometimes we can, we can be dismissive of reform. And, mm -hmm. and what a better way to think about this, and I, th I think what's been argued, is that reform as such is not the problem as long as reform is a step toward yes. abolition. As long as it's a reform that gets us in the direction of where we need to be, I'm fine with that. You know, there's been a long-standing debate among prison abolitionists in general about what types of uh, of reforms constitute 
uh, in a, a proper reform. Mm -hmm. You know, bu building a library in a prison, giving condoms in a prison, uh, lowering the price of phone calls in a prison are all three are three very distinct things, which which do three, three very different can yield three very different outcomes. Mm -hmm. One can make the the lives of people more bearable. It's a humane thing to do for people who are already caged. Another, you know, takes an economic weight and helps dismantle, can actually help to dismantle an, a, the prison industrial complex because there's less money to be made from it. And one can make you think that if we just had shinier, warmer, and fuzzier prisons, mm -hmm. that we could, that prisons are, are the, themselves not the problem, but it's the way we do prison, right? That police are not mm -hmm. the problem, but it's the way we do policing. And so for me, it's not reform as such, but it's the type of reforms that we offer. And so, yes. So when people talk about the abolition of police, ultimately, for me, that means that we want to work toward a world where police will no longer be the way we resolve social contradictions, the way we deal with harm, the way we address crisis. Not that there won't be public safety, not that there won't, can't be other possibilities for how we deal with these things, because there are very real dangers in the world that we have to be attentive to. But the idea is that the current model of policing, the current idea of policing, that policing itself is not the way to respond to that. That's different than saying, we're gonna take money out of the policing budget and put it in these other areas so that police don't have as, so the police don't have as much work to do, right? Be which again, <laughs> in some ways is a good thing because I don't want police responding to my uncle who's passed out with an, with an overdose or or to resolve a petty conflict of, of two neighbors arguing when the police show up and someone ends up getting killed because of that, right? I get that. But defunding the police in some ways could just end up taking all the light work off the police's plate and they have more time to target and occupy and militarize in our neighborhoods. Mm. That's not the right answer. So we have to think about when we use language of defunding, it has to be accompanied by an abolitionist vision. Mm. If it's not accompanied by an abolitionist vision, then all we're doing is saying, you know what, y'all got 10, 10 things on your plate. We only want to give y'all five. That's not the end. That can't be the end. It has to be on the way to something else. And I'm worried that the language of defunding, just like the language of prison reform, can become something that, that doesn't have the abolitionist end, but simply thinks that these structures themselves are still sustainable, that they're still viable options, and they're not. They don't. We have to have reforms that still construct within the collective public or collective imagination the police as the problem, not the only problem, but as the problem. Prison as the problem, and of course all the other accompanying systems at the at at, at the undergirding at the the bottom layer, of course, is capitalism. Right, so so I don't want to I don't want to take that off the table. We have to be clear and honest about that. But 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 the police as problem, prison as problem is something we have to keep at the center of our conversation. If we don't, we will lose our way. A question from the audience wants to know if you guys have a comment on the kind of divesting and dismantling vocabulary that's been used at the Minnesota City Council in relation to the police. I, I haven't read through uh, what all the proposals are, but. I will say that in my book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, I wrote some about Camden, New Jersey, where the police were also dismantled, uh, disbanded in 2014. And what we found there uh, is that police murders and reports of abuse had gone down quite extensively. On the other hand, the police sort of shifted from just being brutal and stomping people to writing an inordinate amount uh, of tickets and fining people repeatedly. So for example, one of the things I write about is how tickets for uh, not wearing a helmet when bicycling tripled or quadrupled hmm. compared to what it had been previous. And so, you know, it's like what Mark is saying, no one is interested in exchanging one form 
of police abuse for a new form of police exploitation. What we are looking to do is to rid our communities uh, of police, which do nothing to uh, alleviate crime. Uh, police don't stop crime. They show up after crimes have been uh, committed when they are not directly involved in criminal enterprise themselves. Uh, they absorb critical uh, uh, public funds and expenditures um, that uh, are needed and necessary, actually, uh, to deal with the problems that we have uh, in, in, in our society. Uh, police leech um, from that. And so, to me, unless that is the dynamic that is being uh, addressed um, in Minneapolis or wherever these kinds of proposals begin um, to emerge, uh, then, you know, we're sort of doing a, a whack-a-mole, you know, it's like you push down on one place over here, but then some other form uh, of police abuse and violence appears uh, over over there. Um, what I think is, is probably more interesting right now is how uh, the University of Minnesota uh, cut ties with uh, right. the Minnesota, the Minneapolis Police Department and said, we don't actually want you on our campus. And it appears that the uh, public schools right. um, in the city have also said, we don't want you on our campus. And so to me, that's a, a kind of more localized version of police abolition. Uh, get off of our campuses, get yes. out, of our, uh, uh, out of our lives. We will figure out how to deal with disturbances or whatever um, in these scenarios. Uh, without the police. That, to me, is a more promising, immediate model, which shows that this doesn't need to take forever. This, we don't need to, you know, ham and haw about this, you know, for, for years on end. That's something that can be decided uh, uh, over a weekend, uh, long enough for you to call a meeting, to assemble a, an agenda, to get some people in a room, and to take a vote. Get out. We have a, an audience member um, who wanted to know about the possibilities of working class solidarity in this movement. I would say, first of all, absolutely. Working class solidarity is key in this movement. And it doesn't mean that we don't take seriously the specific racial dimensions of this movement and that mm -hmm. we don't take seriously unique threats of white, that white supremacy offered to, to black people, specifically in the United States. And, and of course, there's a, there's a moment where the white working class whether it's through whether it's in everyday life, whether it's in unions, et cetera, have to think very seriously about white privilege, about white power structures, about the ways that black people have been excluded even from working class movements. I mean, all of that has to be part of the conversation here. But if we're going to dismantle the system itself, if we're going to dismantle a system that is white supremacist, if we're going to dismantle an imperialist system, and if we're going to dismantle a system where the police are largely there to protect property of the wealthy, then we have to, at, at the core, understand that white supremacy and racism, while they are significant things that we have to deal with and they're very real, they can only exist within the context of a state that defends class at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so we can't we can't disentangle those things. And the white working class also has to understand that their own liberation and economic freedom is tied directly to dismantling these systems. So even if it's purely out of self-interest, this thing has to happen, in addition mm -hmm. to the kind of human compulsion of this. But that also means that we have to have a more robust conversation when Nike makes an anti-racist campaign, we have to hold them accountable to what happens to workers. We have to hold them accountable right. to what happens in Latin America, right? When Ben and Jerry's makes a, a campaign in favor of Black Lives Matter, we have to say, hey, wait a minute now, you know, one of the policy demands of, yeah. of for Black Lives is also d dismantling these illegal settlements in, in, in Israel. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and and so and there's Ben and Jerry's in, in East Jerusalem. Part of that solidarity has to come both at the transnational level, but even even inside. We have to look at these various movements and, and, and the various ways that we're tied together. But it doesn't mean that this movement becomes uh, colorblind or race neutral, or that we transform a, a very specific conversation about the way that the state wields its power against black people in America to a, a multicultural movement that doesn't have any real teeth. I think we can do both at the same time. We can uh, account for the race, race and racialized dimensions, but also have a more robust conversation about the interconnectedness of our struggles. I will just say that I think that one aspect of the demonstrations, the marches so far has been its multiracial uh, character. And I mean, in Boise, Idaho, I don't even know if there are black people in Boise, Idaho. I'm sure I'm sure there's some of us there, but you know <laughs> there was a, a demonstration at the at the Capitol of it looked like, you know, five, I think the report said five, six or seven thousand people. In Portland, Maine, uh, Maine is the whitest state in the United States. There, you know, were thousands of people yeah. uh, who were mobilized around this. And it's not okay, we're mobilizing to talk about our own little thing. It's around Black Lives Matter. To me, I think this is two things. I think one is that the COVID crisis has really exposed the deep class divisions that exist in the United States. I mean, obviously, African-Americans are suffering the brunt of the COVID crisis. One in every 2,000 African-Americans is dead because of, Mm. of COVID. So that cannot be underestimated or uh, diminished in any sense. But it has also shown how the rich look out for themselves, right? The rich end up cushioning themselves with the bodies of uh, low-wage essential workers to protect themselves from the ravages uh, of, this, uh, of this disease. They make sure that, you know, when there is any financial assistance, they get a $500 billion slush fund Mm-hmm. Uh, for corporate America, and everyone else gets at most a $1,200 check. And so the kind of class nature of the U.S. ruling class right now uh, and their complete contempt for anyone else is showing its teeth. And I think that you combine that with the phenomenon over the last few years, which I've talked about uh, more than a few times, which is how the life expectancy of ordinary white men and women has gone into reverse. And Mm. this does not happen in the developed world. And it is being driven by alcoholism, opioid addiction, and suicide. That also speaks of the extraordinary class warfare uh, directed at ordinary people in this country. I think that is one factor. The second one, I think, is that Black Lives Matter has been successful as a social movement. It has transformed the ideas about race, about policing in this country. In effect, it has made Black Lives Matter to millions of white people. It has told people that you must listen, you must speak up, you must do something about racism, and and people are doing something. And Mm -hmm. they might not be doing it all in, in the most, you know, effective way every day, but... People are trying to do something and they're showing up by the the tens of thousands across this country to stand up against racism. 
You're listening to Kianga Yamata Taylor and Mark Lamont Hill on Dismantling the System. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. We're offering you, our listeners, written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Our website is alternativeradio.org. And just like I was saying before, for the left, we have to build on that, right? We have to build on the kind of knee-jerk reaction that is disgusted by the lynching that took place in Minneapolis, but that know that that's not the only place that these things happen. And that we can build that on that into an analysis about a, a country that uses racism to extract and exploit from black people, uh, but also does that to distract white people from the ways that they are also extracted and exploited within this society. And so to me, that has been one of the most inspiring parts of this. This country is deeply polarized. We have the right has been growing uh, because you have a, a, a white supremacist in the, in the White House, but the left is growing as well. A broad sentiment that we should have in the richest country in the history of humanity, a better life for people. That's what the, the Sanders campaign and the, the enthusiasm for that uh, was about. And that's what these mass demonstrations that will not end is about. I'd wanted to ask you what you think about the fact that these protests are also spreading across the world. And we see actions in Ghana and England and Japan and Australia and Brazil. What yeah. do you think about this international aspect and where do we take it, Mark? No, I mean, that's one of the things that, that's exciting to me is to look at the kind of international or, or even transnational um, resistance movements that that have emerged and or, or not that are showing their faces with mm-hmm. regard in response to this particular moment, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with, with a few things. One, the experience of being black in America is a very specific one, mm-hmm. but the experience of being a racialized body mm-hmm. is not specific to the United States, and yeah. and the way that particular groups are racialized and rendered expendable, vulnerable, uh, disposable by the state is, is is an experience that many many people share across the board. You add that to, like you said, this, these these economic shifts and these radical economic shifts and reforms that are happening within particular nations, whether it's austerity, whether it's the, the post-Brexit moment, whether mm-hmm. it's austerity policies in places like Greece, whether it's um, the, you know just shrinking labor markets uh, in, in in North Africa, there are all these interesting moments where people are feeling a, a, both increasingly vulnerable uh, by the state um, for economic reasons and increasingly vulnerable to state violence. And so when you see that happening, it's not surprising to me that you see people saying, wait a minute here, there's a common thread here. There's a common system. There's a common oppressor. I mean, I'm thinking back to Bandung in 55 and the sort of this moment mm-hmm. where, where, where you have this sort of Afro-Asian solidarity that's built a, a, a largely around this idea that there's a common oppressor and there's a co- common system. That's what Malcolm was responding to, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that moment is, 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 is upon us again. 
I think we have to find ways to be supportive of one another. We have to find ways to figure out what each other's needs are. But th but our, the idea of finding each other's needs and support and, and, and producing solidarity should not hinge on sameness. We can concede that there are unique contextual differences, that there are unique formations of power that are that differ from place to place, from context to context. But that but our, our ability to work with to, with one another to dismantle these systems of oppression don't have to hinge on us saying, oh, I can work with them because yeah, we get beat by the state the same way or they're black right. folk over there, too. But that there's a common structure and system around the globe that, that keeps poor people at the, at the foot of state power. And, 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 and that's what we need to challenge and push back against and, and, and dismantle. I would say that I think it's some of the same phenomenon, which is, you know, the particular experiences of black Americans are, are one thing, but uh, there's a global experience with colonialism, with slavery uh, that produces similar dynamics elsewhere. And you map that onto the way that COVID has cut through the globe, exposing not just the, the class differences and that, that rich people are able to uh, um, even if this started out as a rich person's disease, that they are able to protect themselves with their wealth um, and that the burden is borne mostly of poor and working class people who are disproportionately black and brown around the globe. And I think the, the close proximity of the, the COVID crisis has brought these tensions and antagonisms that are typically hidden to the surface of society uh, across the world. And so you have the very similar dynamics in the UK that it is disproportionately black and brown people uh, who are dying as a result of the virus. You know, so you have the same phenomena across Europe. You have poor people who are mostly impacted elsewhere in the globe. And then you have the example of black Americans who historically, whose struggle has been a source of inspiration for people uh, around the world, because this is the, the the most oppressive, the most exploitative country, and there there's a sense that black people who can fight and stand up to the U.S. government, the belly in the belly of the beast, is a is a source of inspiration. And African American struggles has all historically have been informed by anti-colonial movements. So there's always been that kind of mix and that kind of connection that expresses itself dramatically in certain moments in, in history. And we are seeing that now. And I think that this particular iteration of the Black struggle has been a demonstration and has shown people, white people in this country, immigrants in this country, and then people around the world, this is how you fight back right now. This is mm -hmm. what you have to do to confront the forces of capital, uh, and the, the political ruling class, who are willing to stand back and watch us die so that they can get back to business, so that they can open up and not spend resources necessary for welfare states. They might have welfare states in Europe, but they have been trying for the last decade to make their welfare state look like in this yes. country. They have yep. been trying to do that through neoliberal policies. And so this, the explosion, the eruption of black people has provided a model for people around the world to stand up to neoliberalism, to stand up to the class division that has been exposed, the race and class division that has been exposed uh, through the COVID crisis. Obviously the trigger for this particular wave of protests was the murder of George Floyd. But in the same period, we saw the killing of Breonna Taylor 
we saw the killing of black trans man Tony McDade. So I was wondering if both of you could talk a little bit about women in this movement and why there's some erasure sometimes of black women, of black trans bodies in Black Lives Matter. Um, I wrote about this earlier, about the way that this iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement is really built upon the foundation that was established in the previous period, 2014 uh, and 2015. And to that same extent, I think that the quickness with which people have been able to raise that inconsistency in attention around Breonna Taylor, around the killing of trans men and women, it has been a, a quick transition, I think, because of the work that has been done previously. I don't think it's enough, but I think that it has started at a much higher level uh, than it has in previous kind of movement mm -hmm. uh, moments. And I think that is a, a testament uh, to um, the work that was done in the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement um, previously. I think the emphasis on uh, the, the whole hashtag of say her name um, and the insistence yeah. on uh, understanding, absorbing, um, and uh, analyzing and uh, uh, protesting against the murder of uh, Black women by the state, even raising that as an issue that the state actually does murder and attack Black women, and the, the organizing of the, the, the previous period really zeroing in on the particular vulnerability of trans women of color, who I think have uh, a lifespan of like 35 years. As a, as wow. if you want to understand the degree of terror uh, mm -hmm. that uh, is is involved in uh, what it means to be a trans woman, woman of color, then absorb that statistic. The only reason we know about any of this is because organizers, many of whom are black women, are trans women of color, insisted that we know this. And now, in many places, these women um, are playing leadership roles in local protests because there, there's a duality. There's a riot kind of reaction to the provocations of the police. But there's a lot of organizing going on. There's a lot mm -hmm. of demonstrations that are being called. There are actions that are being called. You know, I was talking to uh, friends of mine in Chicago yesterday, uh, and they were saying, you know, that on any given day in the last couple of weeks, there have been somewhere between six and eight protests around the city. So people are organizing that. And a lot of times it's black women who are at the, the helm. So I feel like now we are seeing the continuation, the maturation of the emergence of this political leadership, which really took firm root in the 2014-15 period. Mark, how do we keep yeah, this no, going? How do we keep I, this emphasis going? I think we have to continue to lean on this new leadership body that's emerged in the last five years. I mean, the emergence of an internationalist perspective is also accompanied by a, a conversation about a more expansive understanding of, of who we're fighting for and what we're fighting for and what the face of these movements would be. Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi did an extraordinary thing with Black Lives Matter. And, and it has, to, to King's point, has mattered uh, in so many ways. But the face of leadership and the type of folk we're willing to advocate for and fight for has been put at the forefront. Now, the public following that has been a challenge, right? Getting, mm -hmm. getting the public to care about Black death has always been an uphill struggle. 
Right. When you get the black queer folk, when you get the black trans folk, when you get the just black women, it becomes a, a harder it becomes a harder road. Getting people to fight for Sandra Bland or Renisha McBride mm-hmm. with the same intensity as Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown has never been easy. For me, the um to watch Ayanna Dior be beaten in the very same city that sparked yeah. this global resistance was a disturbing and chilling irony. And so for me, that's why I raised it up, because it's something we have to be mindful of, that we that we have to be able to fight for those lives and represent those people with the same intensity and same care and the same passion. But I think we're in the right direction. The fact that okay. we can, and that's Kanga's point, right, that we can even, the fact that we were even having this conversation right. is something that we weren't doing even 10 years ago it was, mm-hmm. in the same way. Um, and, and, that, and that's accompanied by all kinds of other stuff, class politics as well, right? We have to put Trayvon on a horse and we have to say Michael Brown was going to, you know, college on Monday before he does right, it right, to, right. to make these people legible and human. Yeah. And unfortunately, even internally, this idea that black trans folk are human, the idea that black women are human and worth mourning and worth and worth fighting for and whose deaths are worth avenging, it's part of, part of that sort of language, but it, it yeah. is, is the kind yeah. of, it's, some, is, 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 it's still an uphill battle, but I think we've at least established a framework that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so this idea of all Black Lives Mattering becomes significant. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been essential to the project over the last five or six years. And so I, I'm, I am very frustrated and very sad at, at the, that we still have to have this conversation right. and that we can fundraise for George Floyd at five times the rate sometimes as Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. But I'm also energized by the fact that there's a space to have that conversation. The question is what you guys think about decentralized organizing. They observed that last week, most of the protests were organized not by, you know, Black Lives Matter or a centralized group, but by people who were angry, people who decided to make calls for people to gather. So maybe as a way of closing out, could you kind of comment on decentralization and sort of what that means going forward as we try to build this into a lasting movement? Let me say something real quick. I would just say that one of the great moments in Ferguson was when a certain civil rights leader got booed <laughs> coming out trying to tell people <laughs> what to do five days after they've been doing it for themselves, right? I like organization. I like I like leadership from context to context and moment to moment. But this idea of a singular voice or a messianic voice, this idea of a single body or institution directing our traffic and directing a movement, I think is both antiquated and ineffective. And mm-hmm. so I like the fact that, that that the leadership and the movements are, are, are kind of dispersed in various ways. And I also like the idea that some of this stuff is happening. Uh, it's not random, but it's spontaneous, right? right. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's not happening out of nowhere. It's happening with political purpose and strategy. But 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 I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm just so excited to see what's happening in Minneapolis and here in Philadelphia. I think it's a sign that uh, we've developed new leadership models, which may give us a better outcome than we've gotten before. I will just add on to that and say, I think that we need different types of organizing for different types of situations and that what works in the midst of an uprising um, and, and kind of emergent protest movement, like hours, days, even weeks into it um, might not work six months from now uh, when you're confronted with the duplicitous uh, conniving of the democratic party uh, who, you know, or two months from now, who invite you to their convention uh, to give a speech and who have some really nice looking platform um, and, you know, who Joe Biden gives you a sweet sounding uh, speech. And then you look in and there are no mechanisms to actually enforce any of these new rules. And 
it's not clear how we make them effective. That might require a, a different kind of organizing, strategic discussion, and deliberation about what type of tactics to employ. We have to be dynamic and flexible, um, and that the situation now uh, requires that. It does, you don't, you know, some, you don't need, uh, you know, a two hour meeting with the 10 point agenda uh, to figure out <laughs> what to do right now. You know, right. you need to get in the streets, you know, if, if you're going into the streets right. or you need to organize this kind of meeting or you, you know, it's, it's like this, this part, we need flexibility, dynamism. Mm. It will look different a few months from now. Mm-hmm. And so then as to what I was saying earlier, then we have to have these spaces to discuss, to assess, to determine what it is that we need to do next. And out of that, um, I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of mechanisms of organizing organizational accountability. You know, people like to say there are no leaders. Of course there are leaders, there are leaders in everything. It's, (laughs) it's, are those leaders accountable to the group, the groups, whatever the formation is, or are they not? And so we need mechanisms uh, for that. It doesn't mean one big organization. There can be different kinds of organizations. But I do think that we need coordinated, some sort of coordination so that, not so someone can dominate and tell people what to do, but so that we can learn from what happens in LA, what happens in Chicago, what happens in Philly, And what can we learn from these different examples? What can we generalize from these different sets of uh, examples? What should we leave out from those uh, uh, experiences? You can't just do that on the fly. You can't just do that on Twitter. You can't just do that with, you know, three of your best friends. For that, you need some kind of organization accountability. Um, But even that doesn't have to exist for 40 years with the same people leading it, you know? (laughs) And so I think that now is a time to be flexible, to be open, to be dynamic about these things um, and not to be rigid and say, we've done this one thing this one time, thus this is all we can ever do um, in the future. And uh, everybody should be reading and talking and collaborating and thinking together. Because in many ways to me, this is an unprecedented period. And, you know, there, there's no rule book. There's no blueprint, as people uh, sometimes like to say. And so part of figuring it out involves a combination of history and politics and openness to, to the newness uh, of the moment and also being influenced and swayed by that as well. That was Kianga Yamata-Taylor and Mark Lamont-Hill on Dismantling the System. Both are prominent scholar-activists. They spoke in Philadelphia in early June. As the United States is marking its Independence Day, we're now going to hear actor James Earl Jones reading from a classic speech that Frederick Douglass gave. Frederick Douglass, once a slave, became a major force in the abolitionist movement. In 1852, he was asked to speak in celebration of the 4th of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me 
and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes that would, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake, 
The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. That was James Earl Jones reading a Frederick Douglass speech. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Angela Davis, Rashid Khalidi, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Mark Lamont Hill and Kianga Yamata Taylor on Dismantling the System, just call us at one 800 1977 That's 1-800-444-1977. We're making written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Anthony Arnov and Voices from a People's History of the United States. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Andre Day, Rise Up. Move mountains. We go walk it out and move mountains. And I rise up, I rise like the day. Fui na lepsze Jenny Notz, CJSW 90.9 FM, na zawsze radio, radio na zawsze. Wow! Let me hear.